Um, if you have a Bible with you, can I encourage you to open it to the book of Haggai? To the book of Haggai. Uh, and we are at the last of the, the four prophecies that are in this book. Um, Haggai chapter 2, and verse 20. If you're struggling to find it, it is sandwiched in between Zephaniah and Zechariah towards the end of the Old Testament. I know it's a tricky book to find. You can also cheat and use your phone if it's got the Bible on it as well. That might be a wee bit easier. But Haggai chapter 2, and let's hear God speak to us. Starting at verse 20. The word of the Lord came to Haggai a second time on the 24th day of the month. Tell Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, that I will shake the heavens and the earth. I will overturn royal thrones and shatter the power of foreign kingdoms. I will overthrow chariots and their drivers. Horses and their riders will fall, each by the sword of his own brother. On that day, declares the Lord Almighty, I will, sh I will take you, my servant Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and I will make you like my signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord Almighty. Amen. Let's just pray uh, for a moment. Father, we thank you for your word and for the fact that you speak to us. And as we come to look at it now, we pray that your Holy Spirit would open our eyes, would soften our hearts, and would allow us to hear your word and receive it gladly. For it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. I wonder if any of you were like me and that you have a memory from your childhood of two older men sitting in your living room, probably late on a Sunday evening, trying to outdo each other with the more impressive story. Um, this happened all the time in our house, usually on Sunday afternoons. Two men would, would come and would chat away or would be at my grandparents and I would hear some of their friends trying to outdo each other by telling story after story after story. And we would sit there, you know, amazed at all these amazing things that happened, listening attentively. I imagine all of us were brought up probably listening to stories and probably if we get together with friends now, we probably sit and swap stories of what we used to do or the things we used to get up to or things that have happened in the past. And the reason we do that is stories, stories play a really important part in who we are. All of us have stories in our families or in our nation that, that tell us a bit about who we are, where we've come from and where we're going. All stories have that kind of ring about them of trying to give us a sense of direction of who we are and of where we're going. And as we read this final prophecy in Haggai, what Haggai is trying to do is to show Zerubbabel the story that God has made and where he fits in the story. And what is that story? Well, the first thing we're going to see in this, this week is we see God's story summed up really well in point one. Apologies, I don't want the clicker on me. We see that Haggai is trying to point out to Zerubbabel that there's a really important story taking place at that point in time. The exiles have arrived back from Babylon and 
Jerusalem is in ruins. The temple they're building doesn't look very magnificent. They have enemies all around them who are threatening them and saying that they're going to invade them or attack them in some way. They are facing shortages of nearly everything that you can imagine. And in the midst of this really difficult and discouraging situation, Haggai is trying to point out to Zerubbabel, don't be discouraged, look at what's going on around you and look at where you come in the storyline of God. And the thing that he immediately tries to do is he tries to show what has happened in the past and where God has been in the past for them. If you look down with me at verse 22, through this prophecy, God speaks to Zerubbabel and says, I will overturn royal thrones. Now that word overturn, whenever sometimes we use a word, a word can be connected to a very particular event. A really good example of this is maybe like the word terror. If I were to ask you what comes into your mind when I say the word terror, you would probably begin to say bombs, the international uh, war on terrorism, the wars that have been taking place in the Middle East. We might begin to list terrorist organizations. Terror as a word automatically connects us to the world of international terrorism. Whilst prior to 9-11, if I'd said the word terror, you would have maybe said something that's a bit gruesome or something that's scary or connected it with Halloween. Because words connect to very particular events. And this word that gets translated overturn here is a Hebrew word, hafak. And hafak, whenever it appears and it's translated as overturn, it immediately brings up associations like the word terror does for us. But this word hafak would immediately bring up associations to the listeners of what happened in Sodom. Because every time this word hafak is used to mean overturn, it's in reference to God overturning Sodom, to saving Lot out of the city and overturning Sodom. The second thing that we see God is doing in this passage, whenever we read on a bit further, and says that I will overturn royal thrones and shatter the power of foreign kingdoms, and I will overthrow chariots and their riders. And then for the listeners of this, chariots would have rung bells with what took place at the Exodus. The Exodus, whenever people's, God's people were in slavery in Egypt and they were made to make bricks and to build. And God saved them. And as they were fleeing from Egypt, they went through the Red Sea pursued by Pharaoh and the Egyptian chariots. And as they got out to the other side of the Red Sea, the sea closed over, crushing the Egyptian chariots and their riders. This would have been a significant event in the minds of the ancient listeners. The way we as Christians talk about the cross is the way that an ancient Near Eastern Jew would have talked about the Exodus. It was that important for them because that summed up God's salvation for them as a people in the way that the cross sums up salvation for us now. The third thing that's alluded to here is that whenever these chariots are crushed, it says that their horses and their riders will fall each by the sword of his own brother. And so the image that we're given here is of an army turning against itself, brothers turning against themselves and stabbing and attacking each other. And we read of that happening in the Bible. We read of that, oh, we read of that in Judges chapter 7 where Gideon, who has a huge army that is whittled down time and time and time again until it's only 300 people, stands outside the camp of the Midianites who've invaded Israel. 
and they break jars of clay and they light torches and they give a big shout. And the Midianites, confused at what's going on, get terrified and begin to attack each other and to kill one another's brother. So what Haggai is doing in alluding to these events is almost trying to say this. Did Lot save himself out of Sodom? Or did God do it? Did the people of Israel save themselves out of Egypt? Was it Moses or was it God? Did Gideon's army defeat the Midianites? Or was it God? And what he is trying to hammer into the mind of Zerubbabel is, things may look discouraging right now. You may not be big and you may not be important and you may not be powerful. But your success does not rest on your ability, but it rests on the God who you are trusting in. And look at where you have come from. Look at where God has brought you from and how he has saved you time and time again. And then he tries to fit Zerubbabel into the story of what God might be doing in that moment. He says to him, on that day, on a future day, I will take my servant Zerubbabel and I will make you like a signet ring. The word signet ring is only used once in the Bible. Then if you know what a signet ring is, it's if you've ever seen in an old film, like a wax seal on an envelope and somebody would have a ring that would have a, almost an identical or an individual picture that would place an identical imprint on the seal so that nobody else could have made that seal and you know it's authority and you know that the presence behind it. And we read of how God in Jeremiah um, begins to take his seal away from his people. In Jeremiah chapter two, Zerubbabel's grandfather, who was the king over Israel at that time, Jeconiah, is an unfaithful king. And God says that as punishment, he will remove his signet from Jeconiah. And immediately after that, God's people are taken off into exile. And now they have returned. Now they have returned. A descendant of David, Zerubbabel, sits on the throne. And Haggai says, God will make you like a signet ring. And what he is saying is that, yes, things may be discouraging, but look at what God is doing. A descendant of David sits on the throne despite everything else. And God's presence and his authority has returned to the people of God. This is a huge thing to take place. And what, Zer- what Haggai is trying to get across to Zerubbabel is that God has a plan. God has a plan. There are ups and there are downs, but God is working his plan out that he has been working from all of time and all of history to draw this people that he has taken for himself, to redeem them from their enemies and from sin and to bring them to him. And this is the great comfort we believe as Christians, isn't it? That God has a plan. How many of us know Jeremiah 29, 11 off the top of our heads? For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans not to hurt or to harm you, but to give you a hope and a future. Or how many of us know Romans 8, 28 off the top of our heads? All things work for the good of those who love him. 
Because there is something wonderfully com comforting knowing that in the story of God, we know where we've come from when we read the Bible. But we also know where we're going. And while we may experience ups and downs along the way, whilst we may experience trials and tribulation, ultimately, we know where we're going. We know where we're going. And what Haggai is trying to do here to Zerubbabel and to us as later readers is to remind us of where we are in the story of God. I think it's important to recognize at this point, though, that it's not just God who has stories. Because secondly, there are lots of other stories in the world around us. There are lots of other stories that the world around us believes. Some of you might be listening to what I've just said and think, well, that's all very well and good. But the idea of there being a great arch and structure to the time, that is just well-wishing. That is just looking at things with a rose-tinted lens. That is not being rooted in the reality of life. The idea that there is some great overarching story is great, but it's not reality. You know, we're modern, sensible people. We don't believe in this. But I think it's important if you're a non-Christian or even if you're a Christian here today, to recognize that all of us, no matter where we're from and no matter what we believe, we have stories we believe that shape us. Stories that are not necessarily founded upon fact and reality that shape us and make us think we know where things are going. And as you watch TV or you listen to the radio or you read a newspaper, there is a story that is being told to you by that TV program or, or by that thing that you're listening to. And it is trying to get you to buy into a story that may or may not correlate to God's story. And as Christians, it's important so that we can see these stories and spot them and realize them whenever we're being told them. But if you're a non-Christian here this morning, I think it's really important to just recognize that we all have these stories that we, we think are perfectly fine, but aren't grounded in any reality. There's three stories I just want to quickly highlight. There could be plenty more, but I think there's three stories that I think are most prominent in our culture and that we will hear through the TV and on the radio and whatever we engage with. We will hear these all the time. The first one is the story of secularism. And the story of secularism could be summed up really simply as this. Long ago in the medieval times, everybody went to church. And over the past several hundred years, as we've got smarter and uncovered, silence, uh, and uncovered science, more and more people have found that they don't need religion anymore, and the world's becoming a less religious place. And the story of secularism tells us that where we're going is a day whenever religion will be completely defunct and nobody will believe anything because we won't need it anymore. That's the first story. The second story that we so often hear is the story of progress, which is that we, as people who live in a fairly technologically advanced part of the world, will only experience things getting better and better and better. Who needs religion whenever you have so many trinkets and so many things that make your life easier anyway? Be it a smartphone, be it your computer, be it the internet, be it the infinite number of gadgets that you can get. And if we encounter a problem as a people, we can just simply apply the best minds that we have to it and we'll overcome the problem and we'll come out the other side and things will only get better and better and better until we enter into a perfect technological utopia. The third story that I think we hear most often is the story of self. 
that says that the world will become a better place as more and more of us live our true, authentic selves. As soon as we begin to give up trying to live up to the expectations of others or the pressures of our family might put on us and just live who we truly are and discover who we really are on the inside, then everything will get better and better and better. The difficulty with those three stories is that it is not just that they aren't true and they aren't founded on anything factual, it's that they physically harm us. The story of secularism is that the world is getting less and less religious, despite the fact that data is showing us far from the contrary. The world is getting more and more religious. The only place where atheism is growing as a worldview is in the West, and even then it's beginning to stagnate as the birth rate drops amongst communities that aren't religious. We are going to be in a very, very religious world in the, gener- in the next few generations and the decades to come. The world is not getting less religious, but it is getting significantly more. The issue with the story of progress is that there is almost a religious quality to this idea that things can only get better. If you think about it, why would things only get better? Why would we ever expect that things could never get worse? And in the West, we're already beginning to experience this. In the West, we already see that, for the most part, our economies are beginning to stagnate and plateau. They reckon that within the lifetimes of most of the people in this room, the GDP in China will be double of that of the GDP in America. We're seeing our productivity drop significantly. As a society that's meant to believe in so much progress and have a wonderful technological future ahead of us, all the data is showing the contrary. Things aren't getting better. Things are beginning to plateau. And finally, the story that if we can just uncover our true selves, it is not a coincidence that in a time whenever we are most encouraged to discover our true self and to listen to our inner self and to not take our identity or or meaning from anything outside of us, but to just be the person who we feel ourselves on the inside to be, It is no coincidence that that coincides with the moment where we feel most isolated and cut off from one another and most in need of some greater truth and meaning. These stories don't just hurt, don't just give us false ways of viewing the world. They hurt us and they harm us. And yet the wonderful thing we believe as Christians, and I think that we need to embrace this all the more, is that we do not need to look out at the world around us scared that they have something better to offer. Because the reality is, is that we have a story that is a much better way at looking at the world, that is able to tackle the ups and the downs, the highs and the lows. A story that is finding itself to be more and more true as the years go by. And a story, as we finally see, has a beautiful end whenever we look at the end of God's story. If you look down with me, we read that Haggai says to Zerubbabel that God will shake the heavens and the earth. It's interesting to note that as Haggai spoke these words, in some ways the world was already beginning to shake around them. Babylon, the great superpower of the ancient world 
was beginning to crumble as the Persian Empire began to nip at its heels and eat away at it. The great Puritan, uh, Jonathan Edwards, wrote a long piece of work called The History of Redemption, where he worked out how God was working through all of time and history to redeem and save his people from the ancient world until ours. And what's interesting is that he noted even how these tremors of God shaking the earth found their way throughout all of time and history. Whenever Constantine was made emperor and was the first Christian emperor in the Roman Empire, paganism was shook to its core in a way that it would never recover from. And we as people looking back through history can see it. Empires rise and fall. History shakes. And whenever we begin to see the shakes, that's where we see God is at work. It's interesting, Zerubbabel is talked about in the New Testament, although I imagine many of us probably, our names did not immediately latch on to Zerubbabel being, oh yes, I know that. Zerubbabel is mentioned twice in the Gospel of Matthew, in Matthew chapter 1, verses 12 to 13, in the genealogy of Jesus. As we read of how Zerubbabel, who was around at a time of great shaking in the earth, and is the chosen one of God, as we read about in this passage, Zerubbabel would ultimately be the forefather of the chosen Son of God. And while the earth may have shook in the time of Zerubbabel, we read in Matthew 27 of a time again when the earth shook. In Matthew 27, we read of how Jesus on the cross cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom and the earth shook and the rocks were split open. The shaking that is talked about here is a shaking that is repeated again and again and again. We see it in Jesus when he is upon the cross and the earth shakes as God topples not earthly powers and principalities and kingdoms, but he shakes the kingdom of sin and death itself so that it's overcome. And we know that there will come a day when it won't be just the earth shaking, but the heavens will shake as well. I think it's important that whenever we begin to see, whenever Christ will return and shake the heavens and the earth, I think often we can see it as a, as a Jesus returning like a great general after a battle in a victory kind of way that is almost when somebody's a bad winner, rubbing the faces of those around him saying, ha ha, you were wrong. But that's not the way Jesus will return when the heavens and the earth shake. We read in Revelation 19 that Jesus will return on a white horse, yes, with eyes like fire, yes, but stained in his own blood. Isn't it interesting that whenever Christ will return, he will be stained in the blood that he shed for the world that he is returning to. And as Christians, what does it mean to have a victor who gains the whole world by giving his life up for it? What does it mean for us to believe in a Jesus whose victory doesn't come through hand and fist, but through weakness and death? This is the story we believe. 
not a God who is vicious and violent, but a God who is working through all of space and time, as we read in Romans 8, to work for the good of those who love him by bringing those of us who have wandered astray back into fellowship and union and communion with him through sending his one and only son who will return again as the lamb slain for us. There's a wonderful quote from John Owen that I have above my desk. John Owen was in Ireland at the time of the Cromwellian Wars and he would have seen things like the massacre at Drogheda. And whenever he spoke to Parliament, he said, how is it that Jesus Christ is held out in Ireland as a lion staining his clothes with the blood of his enemies rather than a lamb slain amongst friends? Whenever we come to Jesus as inheritors of that wonderful tradition, we come not to a Jesus who is stained in the blood of his enemies, but a lamb who is held out amongst friends. And will we take hold of him? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the wonderful story you have placed us in, that you are working all things in heaven and all things on earth to bring about your will, that is the redemption of your people. Father, would we take great comfort in this as Jesus, the lamb slain for us. Lord, would we take hold of him as our help and refuge. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.